0: Welcome to New Books and Law Podcast. My name is Ian Drake, and we are joined today by Stephen Riley. He is the author of Human Dignity and Law, Legal and Philosophical Investigations. It's published by Rutledge Press, a 2018 publication. Steve, thank you for joining us with New Books and Law Podcast. Thank you for having me. So this is a philosophical work, as is indicated in the subtitle, and it deals with human dignity and law. What inspired you to write a book about this? There are a number of puzzles,
1: I think, around uh, human dignity and law. Um, You can think of them in terms of a a distinction between, as it were, the, the big problem, which is human dignity's interaction with law itself, how we understand human dignity and legality. And there's a a set of interesting puzzles around how we put human dignity to work within the legal system, within different fields of law. Um, And there's a question about how these two questions and the answers to these two questions interact. Um, So to flesh that out a little bit more, um, at the level of general jurisprudence, at the level of trying to understand what law is, human dignity is a bit of a problem. It, It seems to make some pretty big normative demands on us, normative demands that almost seem to displace justice as our primary uh, normative commitment uh, human dignity seems to be of such importance that it seems to displace all of our important and well settled legal uh, principles, constitutional principles, other specific principles so there's a there's a puzzle to be unraveled there in terms of how we situate human dignity as this vitally important norm principle, whatever it is in
0: relation. To the law. Can I stop you right there for a second? And so um, we're dealing with two different concepts. On the one hand, uh, you've got justice, and you suggested that human dignity is potentially in conflict with the, so to speak, the demands of justice. Before we get to justice, let's talk about human dignity. How, is there a bumper sticker definition of human dignity?
1: Uh, I, I think there is, but um, um, as is the case with bumper stickers, uh, the, not everybody agrees, and they're meant, to, in a sense, to uh, cause disagreement. I mean, people will want to talk about the value, the inherent or the inalienable or the inexorable value of the human being, and that's something like that's got to be part of the story. I think I prefer to talk about the status of the human being, um, which accomplishes much of the uh, the work that we would achieve with the language of value. But it says status says that we need practices, it, it, that we need laws, that we need norms, that we need institutions that support the basic status of the individual. Um, so, in a sense. Um, A difference between basic value or basic status might not make much of a difference um, for a lot of purposes, but the ideas of human value, human status, can be given slightly different inflections in different kinds of contexts, and you can draw out slightly different uh, philosophical
0: uh, meanings from either of them. So would dignity have a different meaning based upon one's status within a given society?
1: Yes, it would. Uh, And I think we still retain and we importantly retain the idea that people have different statuses, which means that they have different rights and duties attached to the roles that they inhabit or the particular responsibilities that they have in a society. But when we're talking about human dignity, we're talking about a status that transcends these different roles, will transcend different kinds of roles and responsibilities, and will pick out rights and duties that will attach to any human being, wherever, whoever they are. So there's no need, I think, to displace or try and abandon the idea that there are lots of different statuses. Um, It's not a leveling concept in that sense what it does want to do is to cut through these different statuses and say that there is a basic status that attaches to any and all human beings.
0: So if, um, if we acknowledge that different statuses exist within a given society, does that also mean that uh, a recognition of dignity in practice, in a, when I say in practice, what I mean is by a court Say, it, a recognition of human dignity is going to be applied by a court regardless of whatever definitional status, uh, definitions of status apply or are recognized within the society?
1: Well, therein lies the, 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 as it were, the specific jurisprudential problem. What does human dignity do when it, when it appears in the, in the courtroom? Does it sweep aside all of our uh, existing legal? Uh, frameworks, legal responsibilities, legal legal duties. Well, it can't. I mean, it can't in the sense that if we respect the rule of law, if we respect justice, we have to let law do its own thing and we have to let societies create gradations, create different statuses. What we need to do is to try and narrow down precisely those circumstances where human dignity does transcend or does displace um, specific uh, role responsibilities or or displaces specific statuses in favor of basic status. And there are a number of cases where that, I think, legitimately takes place, where human dignity does displace specific statuses. So when we're thinking in terms of finding our way to the meaning of equality, equality is a very formal notion. Uh, Equality doesn't always tell us what we should be making equal. What human dignity does is force us to be clear about what basic status is and thereafter where and how we should be affording equality. So it's not as if the the human dignity um, is an automatic trump in any kind of uh, uh, litigation or adjudication. It has a specific uh, set of uh, exemplary circumstances where it does uh, impose uh, concern with basic status as as opposed to uh, specific statuses ascribed uh, by a society.
0: So let's think of a, a particular example uh, that a court may be confronted with, a claim uh, that dignity is being offended by the law. Um, in other words, is dignity... Uh, If we talk about it in a a courtroom or an applied context, is dignity a right that someone claims? In other words, dignity has been violated? I don't think so. Um, The argument
1: has been made that dignity is a specific right and and brings with it a certain kind of set of very basic entitlements, um, subsistence entitlements or um, basic respect entitlements or um, – that dignity can be used as a singular norm to grant uh, uh, grant a remedy to an in- individual grant certain kinds of entitlements to individuals that's not how I see it functioning um, and I think you're going to end up with a, a clash with the rule of law and you're going to clash you're going you're going to end up with a clash with all uh, a whole set of other important norms. and I think that's to be avoided, and I don't think that's what we should be doing with human dignity. What it, what it does is act as a principle. It comes into hard cases, it comes into complex cases, and says, let's find our way to the outcome which is best likely to protect the basic
0: status of the individual. Is that the individual within a given context? You mean that particular individual in a particular set of fact circumstances, or does it look toward, um, if this question of dignity is being asked as a principle, is that uh, elevating the question to all of society for people that are similarly situated?
1: The latter. So I would expect in the main that human dignity, as I understand it, wouldn't figure in day-to-day adjudication. Uh, It's there, as it were, to really provide, in the middle of hard cases, our fundamental orientation towards the individual and their entitlements across a society and indeed uh, more universally. Um, So it might be tempting to have an image of human dignity as a a trump card that can be played in any kind of adjudication, any kind of case that simply simply forces the court's hand towards a particular remedy to a particular party. Um, But I I just don't think that can work, although people have tried to defend that kind of model. What we need to think in terms of is hard cases where major constitutional issues uh, are at stake very often. And a way to find a way to a solution in those kinds of circumstances, a solution that will work towards the basic or general or universal status of individuals. So.
0: Um, Before we come back to uh, some of the potential applications of this, what kind of philosophical background does this come out of uh, for you? In other words, your approach, are you a utilitarian or Kantian or – and explain, you know, the background that – from which your theory originates.
1: Certainly. Thanks. Um, I'm – I've – being a bit of a, a magpie in um, assembling, uh, reconstructing human dignity, um, I've taken kind of methodological tools where I, where where I find them. Um, I think if you're writing about human dignity, it's inescapable to have to have some kind of encounter with Kant. Um, Kant looms pretty large over any uh, human dignity scholarship, um, and he's important. And I'll say I'll say a few things about him in a moment. But um, another theorist has been quite important to me, and that's the American legal theorist Lon Fuller, um, and he's he's in the background of a lot of what I'm doing there um, because of his uh, modern or procedural natural law theory, which I think makes us focus on the importance of the rule of law and preserving the rule of law and how the rule of law uh, connects with human dignity and how the two are interrelated. But Kant's inescapable. Um, Kant is a recurrent point of reference in human dignity scholarship. Um, and in particular, his early, uh, earlier work on moral theory, The Groundwork, um is a pretty much universal reference point for trying to understand what human dignity is. It connects human dignity with universal entitlements, with Kant's categorical imperative, his, his rational universalizability test for moral norms. Um, put in a nutshell, Kant gives us the idea that human dignity is the idea that we should never use other people merely as means to ends. We should never use people as mere instruments or we should never objectify people. And that's a pretty valuable starting point, it seems to me. And it's also a starting point which is used uh, both by philosophers and indeed by courts quite often um, in order to articulate what human dignity is. However, I have a certain kind of hesitation about centralizing that reading all that use of Kant. Kant, in the groundwork, when he came up with that formula, is talking about moral theory. He's not talking about the interaction between law and morality and politics. That comes later in his work. That comes in a later book, The Metaphysics of Morals, where Kant is much more concerned with the grittier problems of putting morality to work within polities, within states, within real um, uh, r- r- real circumstances. And there we find a slightly varied um, conception of human dignity. We find something closer to the idea of what he calls innate right. That's the idea, essentially, that we are all uh, naturally equal. We are all naturally sovereign, or put it another way, no one is naturally uh, superior to anyone else. And that is his starting point for his reflections on law and morality and politics and the interaction between them. And I think that's important, a slightly neglected uh, route into understanding Kant and human dignity. It's less a pure moral theory, but rather Kant. Um, trying to understand us as free and equal, but having to coexist. Um, so, in some, there is a reckoning with Kant, but it has to be a kind of—it's a very critical and combative, to some extent, reckoning with Kant. But there's also Fuller and Fuller's legal philosophy, and that's, I think, quite important uh, too.
0: So, in regard to fuller and um, his concerns with procedures and the application of law um, let's um uh, let's outline what is what does fuller mean by natural what, what do we mean by natural law in relation to uh the concept of um the origin of legal rules and how they apply
1: that's a very good question um and fuller himself. Um, was very resistant to the language of natural. He much preferred the language of uh, a, a procedural theory of law, um, and I think, understandably, the, the the language of natural in natural law has a has a a great deal of unhelpful baggage which which we've inherited from I don't know all the way back through, uh, through the group through the Romans into into medieval thought. Um, So like Fuller, I think we should probably be a bit suspicious of the natural embrace and the living nerve throughout that whole um, history of natural law is the idea that we cannot separate law out from our moral concerns and our political concerns. The moral, the legal, and the political all have to be understood to some extent as a mutually supportive Whole. And with that in mind, Fuller gives us a view of law as not merely coercive or not merely a set of com- commands, but a set of legislative practices which have to uh, coincide with or coalesce with what we are what we are as humans what we're capable of and what we need in terms of our freedom in terms of our coexistence what kind of creatures we are and what we need and that that's a shared approach that's a shared concern th- throughout the natural law tradition call it natural law call it what you want but it's a concern with marrying up law with certain kinds of under, uh, certain kinds of concerns in morality and in politics and i think Fuller, uh, fuller's onto something i mean fuller's forcing us to consider the fact that law must harmonize with humanity if it's to be Effective. And if it's to be just, it must mirror what we're capable of, what we need and what we're pursuing as individuals and as a whole. And that's, that's something that I think we need to bear in mind when we're considering human dignity. We're not simply concerned with a norm that acts as a Trump that simply solves a case for one party. We're concerned with how law, morality and politics mirror, must mirror what humans are and what humans are capable of what we can bind them with what obligations we can make so there's a there's a there's a concern in fuller's work with human ontology what we are with obligation uh, how we can be forced to act what kind of obligations we can bind ourselves with and with other, others and There's a concern with freedom as well, with maximizing the possibility of the law being self-executing, the law not simply being coercive, but allowing us to take the law into our own hands and to follow the law as rational and free individuals, not simply as reactive
0: and fearful slaves of the state. Now, of course, in modern political theory, we have the Uh, contention between Kantian approaches which are concerned with principles and adherence to principles, sometimes to the disregard of consequences, but invariably there's the concern, not just in courts of course, but this is in within in terms of politics and moral theory and legislation, what happens when you actually apply a rule? What are the consequences and should the consequences matter? when you apply a rule. And so, um do you want to comment on what utilitarianism uh is and how that does or does not play any role in human dignity and its role. We characteristically see
1: human dignity quite consciously, quite openly displacing utilitarian calculations or utilitarian considerations in the courtroom um, classic example of this is in the uh, uh, the the German constitutional court um, where Germany's aviation security Act was intended to authorize the state to shoot down passenger planes if they become weaponized uh, as they did in 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 9-11. Um, well, uh, um, some German citizens, frequent flyers, uh, as it happens, challenged this, this, this act under the first norm, the first principle of the German constitution, which is human dignity. And they challenged it successfully. The argument being that the state should not have the right to make that kind of utilitarian calculation the state should not have the power to to make a a weighting game or weighing game rather where uh, a quantity of lives on the one hand might outweigh a quantity of lives on the other Whether or not there are circumstances where you have to make that decision, and I think you probably have to make those decisions in some uh, limited, tragic circumstances, nevertheless, says the court, because of Article 1, because of human dignity, the state should not have the power to make that kind of judgment. Now, i think perhaps intuitions divide on whether that's a, 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 a good decision by the court whether it's consistent with the with the german jurisprudence on human dignity which I, I think it is and whether whether this is a good approach to the powers of the state more generally um but it's a very characteristic um deployment of human dignity um and i think i think it's defensible i think you need an assertion at the root of a constitution, doesn't have to be written down, but it has to be implicit at least, that the state exists for the individual and not the other way around. And we concretize that in particular decisions when we think about the power of the state, and we seek to limit the power of the state. And Show that there is that the primary normative framework that the state should bring to bear in its relations with us is a Kantian one, or at least a a principle or duty based one, rather than a utilitarian one. Now, your question asked quite rightly. I mean, how does that how does that play into a more general understanding of? Uh, adjudication of decision making of applying a rule. Well, it's a limit case, uh, and it's a hard case. Um, so, again, I don't think we would want a theory of human dignity or a jurisprudence of di- human dignity to displace our normal general jurisprudence or special jurisprudence. That is to say, I don't think human dignity is gonna give us a whole theory of adjudication. It's not gonna give us an architectonic that allows us to decide the shape of public and private law, all the different subfields of public and private law. Um, It's tempting to think in those terms, but I think that's, that's to be resisted. What it does is have particular functions or a specific function in hard cases, and they're very often anti-consequentialist or anti-utilitarian cases.
0: And so much, though, of law is premised upon the consequences um, beyond a given case, though. In other words, ironically, many decisions, as you noted earlier, they're not concerned only with an individual in a particular case, in a particular context, even though that case may be rare As you as you say, a hard case, meaning it it just doesn't happen that often, but it tests the principles that are claimed by the parties. But um, ironically, the decision that vindicates concerns about human dignity is not concerned merely with the individual, but with the "quote unquote" the whole of society, meaning other individuals would be. Um, people who are in the same uh, potential situation in the future and so there is this sense of a concern with the overall community
1: yeah yeah that, no, that 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 that's true um and i think it's it's important to know i mean a lot of the normative implications of human dignity as i see it are going to be realized through and indeed filtered through a human rights law And in human rights law, you don't really encounter um, all that many absolutes. You don't encounter all that many unqualified rights. You encounter an awful lot of rights that are quite carefully and deliberately qualified such that they can be qualified by the public interest. They can be qualified by public order. Sometimes they can be qualified by public morals. But the point of uh, you carefully outlining those qualifications is that you are pursuing a harmonious whole that is to say, building a body of jurisprudence that balances the rights of individuals and society and and, and balances out the rights as a whole or finds the best way to combine the different competing demands made by human rights um, It's a bit different, I think, when you are dealing with an older Bill of Rights or an older Constitution that doesn't quite have the explicit qualification that you would find in kind of post-war international human rights law. When you've got an older Constitution, an older Bill of Rights, it does look like there's a kind of direct um, uh, um, kind of binary or a zero-sum game, whereby you have a lot of um, entrenched and well-respected constitutional rights, and then you've got a newcomer, human dignity, which simply says any decision uh, must be in the interests of particular individuals and cannot be uh, brought within a, a wider, a more nuanced decision about. The common good, or collective interest, or utility, or consequences, Um, but I think you that that's ironed out in the juris in in the jurisprudence in the adjudication as as much as it is in explicit human rights law. Your your constitution is a is a. is a not a battleground, but a kind of it's a uh, an ongoing process, an ongoing uh, explication of how individual rights and collective interests are being knitted together. What human dignity does is kind of come in and try and clarify that and stress the importance, the root importance of the individual, not crushing the individual, um, but it doesn't take utility off the table. It doesn't take consequentialism off the table, except I think in those very rare cases where uh, lives are at issue or where people are really being reduced to objects or instruments at the hands of the state. So
0: does dignity, uh, in, in terms of its um, conceptual reality, uh, does it exist outside of law
1: well wow, that's a good one
0: um,
1: as i as I'd like to put it uh, i think I think the rule of law is a necessary condition of human dignity. I think if you are living under uh, arbitrary governance, then your claim to human dignity is questionable. i don 't think the rule of law or legality is a sufficient condition for human dignity. That's because there are certain elements of let's say respect or care that are um, that are normatively important but are never. Uh, easily assimilated to law. I mean, if you try to compel people to care, if you compel people to respect one another, then you're not going to get care. You're not going to get respect. So there are limits to law. And that's why law and morality, um, both self-regarding and other-regarding morality, are at issue, as well as politics. There's a whole medley of normative structures, normative institutions that have to be in place for there to be human dignity. But sh- but law has to be part of that story. It's part of that story both in terms of, as it were, positive, explicit engagement with human dignity, but it's also, more importantly, just implicit um, in legal structures, in legal practices, in legal procedures. This is an idea which is, is found in Fuller, but it's also um, very important in, in Jeremy Waldron's work, and that's that's enormously important too. There, Waldron stresses that law creates spaces To respect individuals in their particularity. So it's not simply, law is not simply a contribution to human dignity because it enforces a particular set of norms. Law is important because it creates the space for individuals to be heard, for their presence to be respected within our societies within our practices. Uh, that's not to say that every individual will auto- automatically get the remedy that they want, but law's contribution is more than granting remedies. It's granting a kind of space or a kind of opportunity for individuals to be listened to and, in a certain sense, respected in their particularity.
0: So if you live in a totalitarian state, say if you live in North Korea, you um, is is your understanding of the role of dignity in law um, such that because you said you had a weak case if you live in an arbitrary state, and so if that's the case, um, is the is the poor person who uh, the poor citizen I don't mean poor in terms of economics but the beleaguered citizen of North Korea um, essentially? Are, are you saying that they have little justification for making a claim regarding human dignity in a state that uh, does not um, premise itself upon the individual's uh, plight? In other words, the concern for the overall state is the prime concern in the North Korean Setting, and so, in other words, the the individuals an afterthought. They're they're merely a cog in a large machine. And so, does dignity there for an individual who wants to make a claim that the state is overriding and ignoring or or abusing them based on principles of dignity? Are you saying that that carries no weight not, not only with state officials but even as a moral or political claim? Or are you saying that there's actually a very powerful political claim that dignity is being violated? Yeah, the, the latter. Um, and it's a very good
1: example. Um, um, it's, it's a good example on a number of levels because it does force us to step outside established bodies of norms, established jurisprudence, and ask, what what are we asking um Extra legally, when we make a human dignity claim, and can we make a, a, a human dignity claim extra legally? And if you look at if you look at political discourse around the world using the language of human dignity, I mean, it's very very heterogeneous. Um, across uh, across states where the human rights record is very poor or where the state is very authoritarian, you find an awful lot of claims articulated through the language of human dignity, but they are very heterogeneous. So you would find in the subcontinent, um, the language of human dignity is very much a demand for subsistence uh, support and for basic Infrastructure, basic uh, hygiene concerns in 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 many cases. Whereas you can imagine political dissidents to the extent that they have a have a voice. Political dissidents in North Korea would would we would be demanding regime change in the language of human dignity. Now I want to say that these are these are are both perfectly legitimate claims, and they're both entirely intelligible claims. And why is that? Well, you're demanding in the first instance that you're demanding that the state should be a stable and individual respecting state subject to the rule of law. So uh, I think it's it's entirely intelligible to be stood outside – a legal system, a political system, saying extra legally, we demand the rule of law. We demand non-arbitrary governance, and to make that claim, you know, in isolation from any particular substantive claims, we just want a sub, you know, we just want a functioning state, um, a non-arbitrary state, um, and that's. In- it's entirely intelligible to articulate in the language of human dignity. But equally, I think um, uh, subsistence claims or claims about respect for the public private divide. These are aspects of human dignity as a principle that is be, that's articulated in flourishing liberal democratic States and in struggling States and, in in authoritarian states um when you're demanding that um the priority of the state be removed and the priority of the individual being asserted you are in a position i think to claim the rule of law to claim the importance of subsistence to claim the importance of a of a good stable public private divide um And the fact that you might not have a forum that's prepared to hear you, you might not have a court that feels that you have any standing, uh, that's immaterial for the force of the moral and political claim that's being made.
0: Well, when I, as I was reading your book, I was thinking in terms of claims by individuals against the power of the state. But As we've been discussing the role of dignity in society, it seems to me that there's often a debate, and this happens in policy formation, in other words, outside the courts, before anything ever reaches a a claim of the state impinging upon an individual's um, autonomy, or offending their dignity, we think in terms of, as you mentioned earlier, the uh, politics of the subcontinent in Asia, there's concern with provisions by the state. In other words, not so much rights against state action by an individual, uh, but rather rights, rights claims by individuals to state action or state provision. And of course, this exists throughout much of the industrial world and uh, all types of economies. And so. I'm curious what you think then about the role of dignity and justice um, in a in a debate about, say, poverty uh, reduction or poverty elimination, because on the one hand, there's one set of political uh, views or dispositions that says you've got to take care of the um, uh, individual uh, by providing them uh, certain types of material benefits that will aid them in their daily lives and create a certain quality of life for them. While others say, well, wait a minute, that's that's actually harming their, and this is the word often used, uh, it's harming or reducing their dignity, uh, meaning it debases it by creating some type of or degree of dependency upon the state, thereby creating or robbing uh, the person of their dignity by making them dependent upon state provision. Is this sense of dignity Applicable to your concerns about dignity and the role of law beyond conflicts in the courtroom. That's that's definitely the uh,
1: the the ballpark. I um I'd want to make a distinction from the outset between what we're gonna what we're gonna claim in the, in the language of human dignity and what might be claimed in the language of justice. So I think we rightly claim in the language of human dignity a certain kind of basic right of necessity. So those um, very basic survival-focused entitlements without which None of our normative orders make any sense, you know. Unless people are given food, clothing, and shelter, none of our other normative practices, none of our institutions, are going to make sense. And I think I think that's rightly articulated in the language of human dignity. Beyond that, when we are, and there's going to be, there's admittedly, I, I, there's going to be a grey area here. At the other end of the scale, there are questions of distributive justice. And I don't think that human dignity can or does colonize the space, the normative space, the philosophical space, uh, enjoyed by distributive justice. Each state has a right and a responsibility to make its own distributive. Decisions, and I think that reasonable variation is to be expected and to be um, accepted between different states. Uh, human dignity is not going to give you a recipe for distributive decisions across the whole panoply of two hundred states in the world with their facing their different kinds of challenges and with their different kinds of histories. Um, so that there must be a kind of division of labor there and there is a reasonable variation in in distributive justice as there is in 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 private law and commutative justice as well but in terms of um a a kind of um critique via dependency i i've not i don't feel the force of that um as certainly as a a kind of as a falsification of, of, of my account or this this kind of approach um whether dependency is a dignitarian issue i'm 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 not quite so sure i i think we should be creating uh as it were permissive states that allow people to make changes in their lives um whether that means that we'd also be avoiding dependency as a as a as a particular kind of sin or a particular kind of vice well uh, i'm 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 i confess i'm not i'm not vexed by that it seems to me that that's that might be a remedial problem but i don't think it should be central to our concerns with either justice or human dignity
0: So let's return to the concepts of courts and their role. Um, You say this is not going to happen as a practical matter um, until you get a hard case. And uh, as lawyers, uh, many people listening to this podcast are familiar with the law. They may be lawyers or law students. And... the cases that you read in the case books they all the advice is you never as a practicing attorney want to wind up in a case book <laughs> and the reason of course is because those were the thing, those were the cases where things went wrong um, not necessarily malpractice but certainly they're the hard cases they're the cases where um, courts and judges are disagreeing about the application of principles and so these are you you might think well these hard cases happen every day but they don't really happen every day. And so does that mean that dignity on average is recognized as a practical matter, a procedural matter? Wow, that's a good one. Um,
1: There's a difference, I suppose, between what we're claiming, um, the realization of human dignity implicitly or explicitly. So... um, Waldron's position, and I think he's right on this, would suggest that if you have good procedures that are giving people um, the opportunity for their case to be properly heard, they're giving um, um, sufficient support um, to bring their case, that there is a certain kind of um, support, good architecture for formal equality in the courts, then you've, then you've got a contribution to human dignity, whether or not it's being explicitly um used it being explicitly um referenced um we don't hear human dignity um used all that often in the courtroom um and i think that's probably a good thing i think there would be a danger in in seeing it as a um as a as a trump that that that's that automatically grants a remedy to particular individuals. Um,
0: And so if it is a trump card, um, does that enhance the power of judges? I think having it as a trump
1: card does enhance the power of judges. Uh, In my experience of uh, looking at the case law, judges are a lot more savvy than we um, than we might fear. And there's, there are sufficient institutional checks and balances to make sure that human dignity and other powerful norms aren't being used simply to um, brazenly um, stack, uh, stack the deck in favour of one, of one of the parties. But it is there as a recourse where there does seem to be a major uh, gap in the law. Um, you find that very clearly and most frequently in international law, as you might expect. That's a relatively underdeveloped a- area of law, underdeveloped practice. Um, in international criminal law, for example, That's there's the, the, very few cases. It has a very underdeveloped, jurisprudence, Um, you can understand judges there reaching for principles that allow them to creatively enhance the law without violating principles of no crime without the law, no punishment without the law. Um, We saw this at the uh, International Criminal Tribunal for uh, Yugoslavia and for Rwanda, you had suddenly um, a revival of international criminal justice. Um, you had an awful lot of cases of egregious criminality, and the very bare um, uh, constitutions or statutes for these for these bodies were were pretty thin. They were they were pretty light on detail, and human dignity in a fair few cases was parachuted in in order to create. Um, uh, or to expand the letter of the law, to expand the letter of the law on the basis of the spirit of the law. And there are very few cases where that looks like um, simply um, sharp practice on the part of the judges. In the main, if you look at that jurisprudence, there's a pretty um, defensible use of human dignity to fill in the details here and there. Um, to fill in details about the elements of the crimes, what is a crime, what precisely uh, counts as a war crime, what precisely counts uh, as a crime against humanity. Human dignity can help you there. But also, I think, to help some of the bigger procedural or institutional questions about how the institution is justified at all, why we justified in prosecuting why the international community is is justified in prosecuting uh, particular individuals. It's not surprising, it seems to me, that you are reaching for human dignity in those circumstances because international law is relatively normatively poor, but also because it simply makes sense as a foundational um, principle for what's going on in those kinds of courts.
0: So what's your um, hope for... uh the future of human dignity in law. In other words, uh, if this book is successful and your uh, claims regarding the need to recognize human dignity, but at the same time your wariness of it being essentially a trump card a vessel into which any judge or, or litigant can pour in anything they want into it to reach a particular result, what then does that mean about um, your hopes for how dignity is actually, in fact, recognized.
1: You're right. I do have a, I do have a, um, do have a, a revisionist uh, project. I think, it, to some extent, implicitly in what I'm doing, I, I do feel that in some fields of law and in some some constitutional contexts, human dignity has taken on certain kinds of qualities, certain kind of implications, some of them quite uh, virtue-based, some of them quite perfectionist, which are to me... A wrong turn um, if you are using human dignity to repress people 's identities repress people 's uh, sexuality, for instance, then then something 's gone wrong and there are other wrong turnings as well I think to some extent in for instance German constitutional discourse, where human dignity has been reduced more or less to a norm rather than as a principle, it's a norm concerned with preventing objectification, instrumentalization. While that's important, I don't think that really captures the intended constitutive or foundational function that, that was meant for human dignity. So if the German Constitutional Court are listening, I think they need a kind of a, a more constitutive and a more constructive approach to the first principle of the German Constitution. Um, but more more constructively, I think human dignity needs to be playing out in the kinds of classes of case which I think really are its paradigmatic um, uses paradigmatic context. These are what I call institute uh, in, interstitial cases they are cases where the legal, the moral, and the political are in context with in conflict with one another where you do have a real conundrum in terms of what's morally right versus what's politically desirable uh, and uh, uh, that whole kind of melting pot of problems that which which makes um the interesting hard cases so um these would be cases like for instance uh, questions of civil disobedience or questions of humanitarian intervention, um, or in some instances, trying to extend the scope of equality law. I mean, what do these have in common? They have in common the fact that they are cases where there is no neat legal answer where the moral and the legal and the political are in contestation. And that's where I think you sh- we should be hearing about human dignity. That's where human dignity should be uh, demonstrating its 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 key interpretive function to try and mediate between these normative orders these the legal the moral and political in such a way as to protect to valorize uh, the individual so that's my that's my agenda that's my hope slightly less concern with objectification instrumentalization and slightly wider concern with how we get principled uh, resolution between clashes between the legal and the moral and the political
0: my guest today has been Stephen Riley, and his book is Human Dignity in Law Legal and Philosophical Investigations. Steve, thanks so much for joining us on New Books in Law podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.